Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. What happens in one state in our country could be an example for nearby states, or so the idea went once upon a time. But with the deep polarization gripping our nation, is that even possible anymore? Today we'll explore that concept with a political scientist who has been researching the idea of laboratories of democracy, and then we'll talk about what Michigan might learn from Minnesota when it comes to effective public transit. That's next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, your host, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. There is a concept that drives a lot of American politics, and it goes a little like this. This is a nation of states, and as such, states should have broad leeway and a high priority when coming up with ideas for the people. They form those ideas into legislation, and when they hit on something that really works, when that legislation bears fruit, nearby states take notice and say, hey, we might want to do the same thing. This is a process that is often called laboratories of democracy. It's meant to imply that our policies and preferences don't just come from lawmakers on high but by from those who live more closely to us and how we kind of learn and borrow from each other. But as Americans become more polarized, is it fair to say that this process even works anymore? Are Nevadans, for instance, adopting good policies that they learn from Californians? Are Floridians learning from their Georgian neighbors? Think about the road arguments that we have here in Michigan and how we won't even look to a state like Ohio, where if you cross the border uh, on I-75, all of a sudden the roads are like glass there. There's no potholes and all this other crazy stuff that we put up with. How come we don't go and try to learn? What are they doing in Ohio? Very close by state with similar weather that makes their roads last longer. Even more broadly, are state governments stepping in when partisanship throws federal lawmakers into gridlock? Are they taking up to experiment more and learn from each other, even as the federal government is somewhat in stasis? University of Washington political scientist Jake Grumbach doesn't think so. His recent book, Laboratories Against Democracy, describes how national party polarization has warped not just national politics, but also state politics. So with the Michigan midterm elections in our rearview mirror and many voters having exerted their political desires across the country, we wanted to know, is there a chance for states to learn more from each other? 
Did this ever really happen at all, or was it a myth? Are state parties able to overcome partisanship in a way that national ones seem not to be able to do? And can local and state politics be a more meaningful and democratic space for voters compared to one that often feels so far away in Washington? Detroit Today producer Sam Corey sat down with Professor Jake Grumbach to find out. So to start off here, you argue that the states have become nationalized in in their politics, that that they're focusing on national politics so much, and it's essentially reverberating back into state legislators in the way that they create policies. I'm curious, what is causing the nationalization of our state politics? Yeah, so that's exactly right. So, you know, we think back to the famous Tip O'Neill phrase, all politics is local, but now all politics is national. So, you know, voter attention is on national politics and uh, national sort of, you know, cultural conflict and national issues. Politicians are focused at the national level. Local and state level politicians have ambitions uh, for national goals and to achieve power nationally. So this is a big shift from a generation ago. And what's causing that? There's a few important factors. One is the nationalization of fundraising. We're now through the Internet. And through the mail, you can fund any politician and groups, national groups can get involved in state and local politics across the country, no matter where they're based. And then the second big cause is the nationalization of political media. So a generation ago, we had many times more journalists on the state and local politics beat in, you know, boring state legislatures covering what's going on. Now, with the rise of the Internet, um, the rise of Craigslist, destroying classified revenue, classified ad revenue for newspapers, the rise of national media conglomerates on cable news and the Internet. All of that has contributed to more attention to national issues and less attention to what's going on at the state and local level. Is there any benefit to truly having more power to the states rather than the, the federal government? I, I think a lot of people think that it would give uh, people more control over their politics. They'd be more engaged in their politics. Um, You seem to be arguing against that, and I'm wondering why that's not true, why, in fact, the federal government is oftentimes more representative uh, than than state and local institutions. That's exactly right. So going all the way back to, you know, the founders and James Madison, there was this argument that if we decentralize authority and give states a lot of leeway— Uh, to do the policies they want. They can customize policy based on their constituencies. You know, so more conservative places could have more restrictive, let's say, in today, you know, LGBT rights or, you know, abortion policies in more conservative areas and more liberal policies in more liberal areas. And everybody's going to live in, you know, greater harmony. And while there's some important truth to that, today what's happened with the nationalized political parties, where the Democratic and Republican parties are two national teams, is now uh, there's not that sort of customization based on local constituencies. Rather, when your state is controlled by one party or the other, you basically know what that state is going to do, and it's uh, getting less responsive to the actual desires of constituencies. And that's because at the local level, uh, again, declining attention to state and local politics means that sort of wealthier interests, corporations, they have a lot greater influence on state and local politics, whereas all of us know sort of what's going on in national politics and which direction we want the country uh, to go in. 
Is it fair then to say, which I think, you know, in part you're suggesting that not having a lot of local news options, it's literally about information ecosystems and people not knowing what's going on at the state and local level? Yeah, that is a huge part of it. So it's really hard to know how to vote. I'm a PhD in political science. I'm a professor of political science. I have a really hard time knowing how to vote in, let's say, like a state legislative primary or for a state level judicial election for judge. Right. It's really hard to know who's performing well, who to blame when things go wrong. There's so many levels of government. So if something's going wrong in your town or state, it's really hard to know. Do you blame the president? Do you blame Congress? Do you blame your governor? Do you blame your mayor? Do you blame, you know, the county commission? Uh, and so forth. It's really hard to know to blame in this system of so many levels of government. But, you know, who does have a lot of information about the fine print of what state and local politicians are doing? And that's the professionals, the people who, you know, are lobbyists for large businesses or for national interest groups on issues like abortion or LGBT rights or the environment and so forth, or the NRA on guns, they have the information to be able to influence state and local politics in a way that ordinary voters can't. Hmm. I'm wondering how great things have really been in this in this uh, instance or on this topic. I know, of course, you know, you're, you're riffing on the laboratories of democracy idea uh, and you talk a lot about the sort of maybe glorification of this concept of states really being, you know, sort of better places for representation or the idea that they're more likely to push for, say, voting rights or civil rights, which, of course, is oftentimes not true, right? In fact, it's the opposite. But I- I'm curious if there was ever a time when states really seemed to be learning from each other and getting better, creating policy in one area and then taking up in another? Like, has Iowa ever been like really learning from Ohio and Rhode Island from Massachusetts uh, in a way that's not true today? Yeah, so there's a few different key points there. One is that on this learning aspect, so, you know, the famous Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis called the states laboratories of democracy. And by that, he meant that states can do policy experiments and learn from each other. One state can, you know, legalize recreational marijuana. And if it goes well, other states can go, oh, that didn't like burn down the state. Maybe we can implement that here. And there's some evidence that sort of story was a bit stronger in the past when states were not engaged in these national political battles as much. They could learn from neighboring states, whereas now states really just learn from other states that are controlled by the same political party. So after the financial crisis, states controlled by Republicans uh, and states controlled by Democrats did not learn much from each other. So state like Minnesota in the Midwest did a pretty strong job recovering from the 2008 financial crisis and more recently in the COVID era with better labor protections, whereas Michigan, one unfortunate thing has been the change in sort of policy towards uh, labor rights, the right to work law, for example, in 2013, that does not reflect sort of learning about best economic policy practices from its neighbor. But then there's another whole side to the story, which is how do states engage with democracy itself? Do states run free and fair elections? Do they, you know, gerrymander districts really heavily? And there, the story throughout history has unfortunately been that the state legislative level is the main threat to American democracy. It's often the Supreme Court that enables state legislatures to threaten democracy, and then Congress decides whether to step in and stop state state legislatures from doing that or not. And that's kind of the situation we're in, 
where there's a small risk in the 2024 presidential election that state legislatures might end up giving electoral college votes to presidential candidates who don't win their electorates in their states. Yeah. You're touching on this a, a, a little bit, Jake, but but I do want to pull it out a little bit more. I, I'm, I'm curious about the differences in the way of the nationalization of our state politics. I'm wondering what it looks like in democratically led state legislatures versus Republican state legislatures. What, what kind of policies are they passing? What, what what are you noticing or seeing that are that are real differences here? Great call. So on policies across the board, sort of issues like gun control and gun rights, climate policy and environmental regulation, taxing the wealthy, support for labor unions and workers, abortion restrictions and abortion rights, LGBT rights, issues of civil rights. All of these areas have seen huge changes at the state level over the past generation and much less important policy coming out of the national government. So this is a big contrast from the 1930s through the 1970s, there were huge deal national policies like Social Security, Medicare, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act. All of these policies made states more similar in their sort of economic circumstances and their sort of civil rights, you know, and that there used to be a big difference. Some states essentially didn't allow any black people to vote and states in the North did. The Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act come in and say, no, states have to be similar on civil rights. But there was a decline in that kind of national policymaking since the 1970s. But what happens is in as a substitution was that states got much more involved in these policy areas. So conservative states became much more conservative in their policy and liberal states more liberal in their policy across the board on many issue areas. I would say that's pretty similar on the left and the right. For example, some conservative states cut taxes on the wealthy, whereas more liberal states increase taxes on high-income earners like millionaires. So that is a, a sort of symmetry there. Uh, by contrast, when it comes to policies towards elections, voting rights, and gerrymandering districts, those are much more one-sided where it's been the Republican Party that's been sort of especially aggressive on those, restricting uh, access to voting and especially uh, really setting new records in the level of partisan gerrymandering in their district maps. If you're just tuning in, this is Sam Corey speaking with Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Washington, Jake Grumbach. He's the author of Laboratories Against Democracy, How National Parties Transformed uh, State Politics. Um, Jake, one of the things I want to ask you about is just the gap in public opinion and policy that there often are at the state level particularly on things uh, like education and gun control. People, it seems like across the country, want more spending on gun control type legislation, and they also want more spending on education. They actually want a ton of spending on education, but there's a huge gap in where people are and where policy is, where, where states have actually implemented those policies. I was flabbergasted by that. Um, but I'm curious why you see that, why state legislators fall behind on these policies particularly. On education, for example, that's an area where, yes, as you said, consistently voters want greater spending for K through 12 education, especially, and also to some extent, uh, not quite as strong, but pretty strong on increased 
public higher education spending too. But what's happened is state level funding has been stagnant or really declined. So that's really out of step with public opinion. And there's a lot of reasons for that. So as we mentioned, it's it's really hard to know how to hold state legislators accountable if you're a voter. It's really hard. There's not much media coverage of uh, what state legislators are doing. And some of my own research and research from others like Steve Rogers at uh, the University of St. Louis really statistically shows that when state legislators vote for unpopular bills like cutting education spending, they're not punished by voters because voters don't really notice it. Whereas voters really do notice when a president has high gas prices or does something they don't like. There's a lot of media coverage and presidential approval tends to go down. It's not true of state legislatures. But a new big deal issue after the Supreme Court decision in the Dobbs ruling that allowed states to ban abortion, what we're seeing now is the rise of really unpopular bills to ban abortion in a number of states. States like Michigan that are somewhat poised to ban abortion really have pro-choice majorities of the mass public. So this is a new area we're seeing some out-of-step policy. And one reason why state legislators are able to get away with voting for an unpopular policy like an abortion ban is because of gerrymandering, because a more conservative, less urban, more rural set of voters that is against abortion rights, they often have the power to set state legislative majorities because of the gerrymandering of districts. Just to unspool this a little bit more, because um, you noted on it, when, when lawmakers do you know, pass legislation that's unpopular, again, say, on education, and then they go out and then they, they run again, because this is the whole point of a small d democracy, right, is that you get to vote people out if they're not doing what you want them to do. The general public doesn't know about their record. And then also, I don't know, they, they hide behind, you know, broad national talking points from their party. Is that, is that generally how this goes? Really well said. So it's also, uh, uh, yeah, so part of it is the lack of information that we have about what our state legislators are doing. But the other side of this is that politics at the mass level has really become about cultural conflict nationally and a lot less about sort of your day-to-day economic policy. So now I like to sort of joke, but it's actually real. Statistically, if you want to know how somebody votes, you actually have a better shot of doing that by understanding their opinion of Colin Kaepernick or of, you know, Lizzo playing James Madison's flute and sort of cultural iconography like that is actually a stronger predictor of which party somebody votes for than their opinion on health insurance or the minimum wage or uh, other sort of uh, economic and what we used to call kitchen table issues. So people are not currently as animated by Uh, things like whether or not they're going to have health insurance. They're a bit more animated by issues of culture and immigration these days. Hmm. Uh, Jake, I want to take us back kind of to the start of your book, the things that kind of jump-started your research into this, which was you start kind of talking about national politics and how national politics and specifically passing legislation at the national level was just lagging behind. You're just not seeing big pieces of legislation being passed. Right now, you've, we've had a lot of big spending. Um, we've had the Infrastructure Bill. We've had the CHIPS Act. We've had the Inflation Reduction Act. Of course, this was a small bill, but we had the gun safety legislation. Are we in an anomalous period right now where the federal government is doing a lot to pass uh, legislation and Congress is kind of getting its act at least somewhat together? Or do you think 
the federal government is actually on track to pass a lot more legislation, is actually doing a lot better um, to come together to get things done for the American people. Yeah, that's a really great point about the the COVID era actually did see a lot of bright spots when it comes to, you know, the national government passing economic policy to actually help give relief to the American people um, that was kind of economically necessary. So this extends through the end of the Trump administration and Republican Congress actually engaged in some important relief spending as well. But then that ramped up in important ways in the Biden administration, as you mentioned. These are big deal national laws. Some uh, had sort of sunset provisions and ended. So the child tax credit, uh, while it was briefly the expanded child tax credit was in effect, that reduced child poverty dramatically. That was the biggest reduction in child poverty since in 50 years or so. And then Congress decided not to renew that policy. Um, mm-hmm. But for some moments, this was a huge deal. Uh, and there was some consensus on these sorts of economic relief policies. So you're right. There was a brief exception, I think, mostly due to COVID. One of the things you proposed, Jake, to kind of solve our political woes, the federal government not passing enough legislation and giving too much power to states or focusing too much on states, which is just a reenactment of the nationalization or polarization of our politics at a more local level, is to give the federal government more power, is to give the federal government more say um, over our lives in terms of legislation and particularly in terms of voting rights, to strengthen voting rights. I'm curious why you think a stronger federal government will kind of solve uh, our our lack of representation issues um, and what you make, and I know you've partially addressed this, but what you make to the counterclaim of like, hey, I love local and state politics. That's where I feel like I have a say. That's where I can actually be a part of politics because it's so hard to, I don't know, get in touch with my Congress member or to right. actually feel like I'm part of politics. That's right. So yeah, no, you hear it when you hear your state or local elected official running for office in their campaign, they're going to say, listen, I'm your local representative. I'm not like the distant fat cats in D.C. over there. So that's actually a crucial appeal and that part of American culture, localism going back generations. But what I'm trying to show are the trade-offs of that type of system that puts a lot of emphasis on state and local policymaking. And you see this in a number of ways. So contrary to what we think, State and local political participation, that's people who vote in state and local elections off cycle, people who donate money to state and local campaigns, people uh, who uh, go to state and local commission meetings like local you know, housing zoning meetings. These people are much more wealthy, you know, older, whiter, wealthier homeowners than the average person in a national election or people engaged in national politics. So it's actually a really unequal setting for politics to happen at the state and local level. So if you care about having the voice of young people, the working class, black and Latino people, then the emphasis should be a bit more on national politics, contrary to our sort of conventional wisdom. But then we're talking more specifically now about policymaking and authority over things like voting rights and the rules of democracy itself. So this is a whole separate category of issues about the sort of rules of the game, not just are we going to tax the rich more or less or have a higher or lower minimum wage, like who is allowed to vote? How hard is it to vote? 
and how biased will our district maps be? And do we enforce that the candidate that wins the most votes is going to win the election or do we give the electoral victory to another candidate? Those things are decided by states currently, but most countries around the world, stable, wealthy democracies, they have a national independent agency or commission that sets national rules for voting and election administration. And the fact that this is done at the state level in the U.S. is actually leaving American democracy kind of vulnerable to threat. So uh, we have this hodgepodge system of election administration where basically one state or one county has the potential to cause a whole constitutional crisis nationally in this era of nationalized politics. Um, That's, you know, Basically, we're only as strong as our weakest link, and we have a lot of links in this chain in the U.S. Mm. Jake Grumbach is the Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Washington. He's the author of Laboratories Against Democracy, How National Parties Transformed State Politics. Jake, thanks so much for being here with us. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. Thanks to producer Sam Corey for that wonderful interview with Professor Jake Grumbach. When we come back, we're going to look to the nearby state of Minnesota to understand how they instituted better public transit between the Twin Cities and how we might be able to learn something from them and get our acts together with public transit here in Southeast Michigan. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. WDET is your place for open dialogue. The music you love. Real news and in-depth analysis. And cultural experiences. The sound of Detroit. 1019 WDET is your public radio station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks a lot for tuning in. We just heard from a political scientist about how states are now somewhat less likely to learn from each other and adopt good policies. If you think about it here in southeast Michigan, we've got a lot of issues that we might look to other states to help solve, and we almost never hear about those examples. We never see that kind of exchange of ideas or good practice that makes things better for us and maybe better for people in another state. But there's one issue that I think really stands apart from almost every other in that regard, and that's public transit. My entire life here in Detroit, we have really struggled with the idea of building a reputable and reliable and efficient public transit system, uh, not just in the si- inside the city of Detroit, but between Detroit and its suburbs, maybe even between Detroit and some other cities like Ann Arbor or Lansing or Flint. And yet, if you look at states around us, there are cities that are really coming up with interesting ways to solve that problem. And we almost never look to them for their example. Well, we decided here on the show that we want to try to take a little different tack 
on that subject right now. We want to learn a little bit about how the state of Minnesota was able to expand public transit, which is something that we desperately need here in southeast Michigan, and be successful in their efforts doing it. Chris Coleman was the mayor of St. Paul, Minnesota, between 2006 and 2018. He helped establish light rail between Minneapolis and St. Paul, which first opened in 2014. He's here now to talk to us about how the Twin Cities did it and whether there are things we could learn from them here in Southeast Michigan. Chris Coleman, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. I'm happy to to be on your program. So let's just start with this. How did you do it? What was the process like for getting this light rail implemented between Minneapolis and St. Paul? And I will say up front, I've been to Minneapolis and St. Paul uh, several times. I've used the light rail. I've seen the light rail there. And each time I've kind of marveled at how uh, efficient it seems and how much people there seem to be embracing it. They use it. Uh, and that's one of the things that we've really struggled with. So, so, so tell us how you got this done. Well, I, I would tell you it's a, it's a very complicated journey and, and no, no uh, one thing that was the, uh, the, the key to success. But to, your, to the point of the, your earlier comments, one of the things that we did was we went around to other parts of the country. We went to Metro Denver, we went to Dallas, we went to cities that had really embraced investment in public transportation. We saw the impacts of it. We saw the, the ways that they uh, were moving forward with investment in, in public transportation and a multimodal system. So not just reliant on one or two light rail lines, but really having good bus uh, service and uh, bike trails and walking, you know, everything that that's necessary for a complete um, multimodal transit system. And we said, you know what, these are our competitors uh, economically. These are our competitors for bringing in new talent into our community. Uh, if we don't do this, we're going to fall. Uh, we're going to fall behind these other metro areas. And uh, so I think there was a consensus from the leadership in the in the community, both in the metropolitan area and at, at the state level, that said. We need to do this um, because this is important for the economic vitality of our region. So you said that you went and looked at uh, what what other cities had done. Talk about some of the examples uh, that you saw and the things that you were able to borrow from those examples. Well, I think uh, Denver was particularly instructive for us because they were moving forward in a massive way. Uh, mm-hmm. They weren't. They were really relying on on multiple. Um, lines. They they put together a funding source and said, you know, we're not just going to build one line. Uh, and this is actually a challenge for us in the in the Twin Cities region. We're kind of building one line every twenty years, uh, so we we need to figure out how to accelerate that. But um, it was clearly one of the challenges for us, or one of the I guess inspirations for us was was this really comprehensive approach that Denver was taking. And then when we went to Dallas and took a look uh, down there and said, you know, here's a southern state, here's not one that we kind of normally associate with with investments of this magnitude in public uh, public resources, uh, and we said, boy, we're you know, we we can't be beat by by Dallas on this. And so there's a little bit of a competitiveness to to all of this, uh, but the fact of the matter is, um, you know, there's a lot to learn from other communities. So tell us a little more about the line that goes from. Uh, Minneapolis to to St. Paul, um, how far it 
it goes, how it connects the, the two cities, uh, and uh, how much it costs to, to, to build it. I mean, one of the things that we've really faced challenges with here is the cost of, of public transit. We've got a new uh, three-and-a-half-mile line that runs from our downtown up to about the center uh, of the city, so not a very long run. It costs about $150 million dollars. Uh, to do that. And, and you know, there's not federal money available the way there used to be uh, to do things like that. Now we're having to subsidize that that line with a lot of uh, with a lot of public money that uh, wasn't anticipated at the time. It, it, it seems like uh, it's it's that's always a challenge. I'm really curious about the, the economics and the practicality, I guess, of of that line uh, from Minneapolis to St. Paul. Yeah, well, I think anytime you put a sticker on on a, a project of this magnitude, of course, it seems out of control. You know, you go, oh, that's a billion dollars. Uh, at the time, the uh, the light rail line between Minneapolis and St. Paul, uh, as or as we say in St. Paul, from St. Paul to Minneapolis, uh, <laughs> the you know the cost is always you know uh, enormous. It was the largest public works project uh, in the history of the state of Minnesota at the time that it was built. And so there's no, um, you know, no getting around, and you can't sugarcoat the fact that these are expensive projects. The challenge is we don't we don't compare apples to apples, uh, so we don't talk about the cost of building a freeway mile, uh, nor do we call, nor do we factor in the 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 public uh, uh, resources that go into maintaining that mile, whether that's you know whether that's you know fixing potholes or uh, plowing the plowing the uh, the road in the in the winter. So, so what really when you do your your apples to apples comparisons, uh, and the amount of public support that's required to maintain the, those lines, there's it's really much more of a you know a, a fairer comparison that I think shows pretty well in terms of the amount of people that you can that you can move uh, over any given stretch of road or light rail. Uh, it's it's just uh, you know I, the critics will always say, well, you know, we're we're you know that we're not we're not getting cost recovery at the fare box. Well, you don't get you don't get cost recovery at the fare box, mm -hmm. and, but you don't build those systems in order to do that. You build it because of the the secondary and tertiary benefits in addition to just moving people back and forth to work. Um, you know this there is you know ample study after ample study that says um, you know you you get fixed investment in new housing, uh, new businesses along the line. Um, you get you get people moving into communities. You know, if you look at the Twin Cities, we we have seen just an explosion of housing along the light rail line between the two cities. Uh, we've also seen the explosion of investment in. Uh, we have our new Major League Soccer Stadium on the line. We have um, we have investments at the University of Minnesota, which was a challenge getting the line to go through there. I mean, there's just you really see the benefits as a result of that, uh, and and particularly given. What's happening in cities across the country since the pandemic and since uh, post uh, George Floyd's murder, you know, you you are seeing uh, challenges for cities, but where you see the investment that was made by the public sector in transit lines, um, you're, you're doing you're doing much better uh, than you are in other places. Mm. Hmm. Uh, I'm talking with Chris Coleman. He was the mayor of St. Paul, Minnesota between 2006 and 2018. He helped establish a light rail line between Minneapolis and St. Paul, or as he would say, between St. Paul and Minneapolis. It first opened in uh, 2014. Uh, he's talking with us about how they did that. We are talking about this because, of course, uh, we struggle 
quite mightily here in southeast Michigan with uh, ample public transit. Think of the things that we've done over maybe about a 50-year stretch, the things that we've tried, uh, many of which have not worked, many of which have run into uh, real trouble with uh, uh, different governments being able to cooperate over over transit. Uh, we fight about money all the time when it comes to public transit. They seem to have uh, solved at least some of those problems in, in Minneapolis and St. Paul. The question is, why can't we learn from them? As always, we want to hear from you on the phones and on social. Give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. Uh, you can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit today and we can include you that way. Let's go to Pat in Birmingham first. Uh, Pat, what's on your mind? Hi, Stephen. Thanks for taking the call. Sure. Just wanted to just wanted to point out that uh, this example that you're offering here from our friends in Minnesota is actually a, a classic example of how the laboratory system works in the United States and is still alive and well. Um, it, if it weren't for these other cities' abilities to solve their problems in a unique and individual way, which is a compelling point in the Constitution. Uh, uh, the Minnesota folks wouldn't have been able to go to these places in the first place. They would have turned immediately to the federal government. So I, I think that really sort of emphasizes the point that the laboratory system is alive and well and still uh, still needs its support. Also keep in mind that the Founding Fathers really intended for uh, the federal government to be one of those uh, laboratory schools mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's you know, we're, uh, and the abortion example is a classic one. Uh, there were laws in the states in the 70s about abortion, and finally it became a national issue. So um, I, I certainly appreciated the points your first caller was making, but just wanted to add that, that the laboratory system is still a pretty big necessity as it relates to things like local government if they choose to take advantage of it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Pat, I really appreciate the, the call on that and uh, that insight. Uh, uh, Chris uh, Coleman, I wonder if you can talk about the coalitions that you had to get together to to build this, the, the, the political hurdles, I guess, that you had to clear in order to, to, to make this happen. Well, uh, one thing that we have in the Twin Cities that um, was very unique at the time it was created, which was in the late 60s, uh, kind of developed in the early 70s, was a metro regional governance system. Uh, it's not a true governance in the sense of, you know, dictating daily policy or zoning ordinances or any of those things. It's not like a Nashville Metro or Louisville or some of those other cities. But it, but it is a governance system that, that was really put in charge from a regional perspective on transit issues, on, uh, you know, water and sewer and some of those other things uh, called the Metropolitan Council. And that leadership of the Metropolitan Council really drove the, the, uh, the, kind of the, the momentum to get the systems built in the first place. Uh, we also had the, the counties that were acting as regional rail authorities for, for each of the Ramsey County and St. Paul, Hennepin County and Minneapolis. Uh, and the leadership of the county board members was, was critical. Uh, and it was a really, it was a three-part funding system. So there was the local regional rail authorities uh, were responsible for, I think, 10%. The state was responsible for another 30 or 40%. And then the federal government ultimately came in with, with about half of the funds 
for those systems. And so, you know, they're, so those opportunities are important. To, you have to build those alliances and you have to have support. Uh, you have to have support of a, of a state legislature and particularly a governor. Mm-hmm. You have to have support of your, of your regional players. And it's also important to understand it from a business perspective. And I, I think having support of business leadership, we have in a group called the Itasca Group that uh, that was really instrumental. As a matter of fact, the 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 person that is now in charge of our Met Council used to be the uh, the chair uh, of the uh, of the Itasca Group, and he was one of the folks. The interesting thing about him is he was actually the owner of a bus company, uh, but he understood that great transit systems weren't just dependent upon one mode. It was really about having all of these other pieces. So I would say it was a it was a citizen coalition, you know, demanding better transit. It was it was the governor, the government uh, on the local level. It was the government on the state level, and then we did have a strong strong support at the time. Uh, Congressman named Jim Oberstar was the chair of the Federal Transportation Commission in the House, and he understood that great cities and great communities were built from great transit systems, among other things, um, and understood that the federal government had a role in supporting all those things. So there were there were a lot of partners at this table. A lot of a lot of fathers and mothers to this project. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's take one more call before we have to break. Uh, Tim in Minneapolis. Uh, Tim, welcome to the show. Hi. Uh, so thank you, Stephen, for touching on this issue. I'm I split my time between Minneapolis and Detroit, and I love listening to WDET. Hmm. So uh, the it's I think would be helpful for listeners in Detroit to just visualize what it's like to have a really wonderful transit system. So, of course, it's not just our two LRT lines, it's our bus system and how things run on time and frequently. For example, uh, near my house in South Minneapolis is the number 14 bus line on Bloomington Avenue, and you can set your watch by it. Uh, I have to plan to be there a couple minutes early because (laughs) it arrives exactly on time, and a lot of times I'll be approaching the stop and I'll see the bus go by. Oops, I missed it. Well, I was 30 seconds late. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it comes every few minutes, and it's not even one of the main lines. So it really improves a person's life to have the option of getting around that way, especially, uh, you know, if you're in a place in Detroit where owning a car is so expensive for the insurance and, and everything else. Um, and also in Minneapolis, uh, we have a multimodal system where we have a great network of bicycle uh, routes that are off-road in old railroad corridors or along rivers or uh, otherwise offer a relatively non-stop travel opportunity, which offers fast, safe, and pleasant bicycle mm. transportation. Huh. So it all works together really well. Yeah. I, I, uh, Tim, I'm really glad you called and and uh, illuminated that that uh, that example because i mean as you say you live in both places and uh, it sounds like you use the public transit in uh, in the twin cities as well which i think is one of the things um, that's one of the problems here is that a lot of people feel like uh, it's not useful enough for them it's inconvenient and so uh, usage doesn't doesn't reach the heights uh, that it should but uh, I, I really appreciate your call uh, Chris Coleman uh, it was really great to have you here with us uh, to talk about uh, that's this LRT in uh, Minneapolis St. Paul thanks so much for joining us my pleasure thank you so much Okay, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we are going to talk about uh, transit here in Southeast Michigan. Transit changes as a result of the elections on November 8th. Uh, Stay with us for more Detroit Today.
This is Detroit Today. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining. We're talking about learning from other communities about how to do things better, and our own have been talking about transit, comparing southeast Michigan to Minneapolis-St. Paul. Now we want to talk about what we're doing here in southeast Michigan and something important that happened on November 8th. Regional transit uh, is still somewhat of a pipe dream here in Metro Detroit, but voters uh, on November 8th have uh, decided to expand uh, public transit services and to pay more taxes uh, for those services. We've invited Dave Woodward, who is Oakland County Board of Commissioners Chair, back here onto the program to talk about what this transit expansion will mean for Oakland County residents and whether it makes the possibility for regional transit more likely. Dave, welcome back to Detroit Today. Uh, thank you, Stephen, for having me on. This is, this is exciting. It's a good yeah. time. Yes, uh, and congratulations on passing uh, the millage. I know a lot of people were worried about whether that would happen, uh, but let's talk about what uh, what that means, what the rollout will look like, and uh, how transit will be different because of this. Certainly. Uh, yeah, I, I think uh, many of us who've been working on this for many years knew that if we let the voters have a chance to weigh in on this, that they would vote in the affirmative. And that's in part of the coalition work that was done beforehand, but also most importantly, um, a recognition that Oakland County, which has long been seen as a barrier to advancing transit, uh, wanted to be a leader and a partner in advancing transit in this area. And so we, with this election, uh, 57% of the voters saying, yes, we need to do the, yes, this is important. Uh, and including areas that people thought that the local local residents didn't want, they they showed otherwise and coming out in big numbers. In some cases, larger than what the the county as a whole did. Uh, we've moved the conversation from uh, whether or not we are going to have transit that is accessible by all people across the county to how do we make transit work better, uh, and then how does Oakland County. Um, better sit at the table working with the region to make sure that people can move from point A to point B as seamless as possible. So, as always, we face challenges here in Southeast Michigan, even when we try to do the right thing. Talk about some of the hurdles uh, that remain here. Certainly. Well, I mean, one of the biggest hurdles that I think that we've like um, moved beyond is this uh, ridiculous, archaic opt-out uh, model that we had. This, I mean, you've heard me talk about it, like the Swiss cheese approach to county where, uh, to transit, where you had someone driving up a road, can't get off in this area because this community is not part of it. I can start getting off three miles down the road. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and no one envisioned it to be used the way that it actually got used in Oakland County. So um, we all have a stake in the game. And I can already tell you that the conversations with political leaders and uh, stakeholders, the business community, the education community is, is, is moved so far into the direction of how do we make this work for all of our, all of our residents, the people that need to come here, I mean, to work at jobs here, the people who need to get to healthcare here and throughout the region. Uh, and uh, by just structurally changing the way that we fund uh, transit, funding it very similarly that we fund other county uh, essential, essential services. Uh, now, they, they got the other barrier, and I think um, your previous scholar, Mayor Coleman, I think did a very good job talking about, I mean, the cost to do this and um, the, the long-term cost to be able to provide this basic uh, benefit that's absolutely essential to our local communities. Uh, I want to manage expectations. Um, this is a millage. This is, um, I mean, a record level of funding for transit in Oakland County. 
uh, about $67 million annually to help support this, which maintains everything that we had in place, but sets aside uh, millions of dollars for expansion to make sure that we have transit that reaches everybody, as well as other uh, infrastructure investments that we can make over the next 10 years. Um, so having a longer runway to be able to leverage those dollars, the maximum benefits, um, more funding, but realize that that's how big the pot is right now. Mm-hmm. And if we are going to make measured gains on on regional transit, we need to figure out other ways to fund it. And that's going to involve partnerships with the state and, um, and, and maximizing resources from the federal government. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, uh, 313-577-1019 is always the number here on the phones. If you want to join the conversation, you can go to Twitter as well, hashtag Detroit Today. Let's go to Robert in Detroit. Robert, what's on your mind? Hi. Oh, hey. well, um, one of the things I wanted to say was about the laboratories of democracy. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. it's great to look at other states, but what about other countries? Why is that always off the table? And the other thing I want to say is I, I know I've lived in cities with great public transportation. And it was amazing. And um, I, I don't want to talk about that right now, but to have a, uh, a high-speed train that goes from Detroit to Chicago and then the one that goes up to Mackinac straight up the center, with every hour you have a train going um, to the coast would be a boom for tourists. And one last thing I want to say is, just like we have ferry boats, how about some trains that are high-speed that you could drive your RV on? Huh. And then get off. <laughs> That's an interesting idea, Robert. I love, I love all of those ideas. Uh, um, so, you know, uh, Robert's questions, Dave, remind me uh, again of the regional regional transit authority um, and the power that I think all of us believed it would have when when we when we passed that in the fact that we haven't quite gotten there what does this vote in oakland county mean for for the rta and and this cooperation among the different counties here to to get to ideas like like roberts yeah yeah and and i have been a transit enthusiast for 20 years of my public service career and i share the i mean the vision and hope that we can make measured progress uh in time I think part of the secret sauce, uh, if you will, involves recognizing that transit needs uh, vary from, I mean, communities to communities, that in more urban, densely populated areas, the transit need is different than in more rural areas. And uh, and we have to be responsible and looking at the cost to be able to deliver these services. We have to embrace technology that allows for efficiency. Um, At the end of the day, I, I evaluate success getting people where they need to go and um, to the extent possible where they want to go. I mean, essentially where they need to go, healthcare, jobs, and those types of things, and making certain that the trans, um, transportation disadvantage can be able to actively participate in our community. Uh, but how do we do it in such a way that enhances the experiences for us to be connected to places all across this county? Um, and so I, I think what what this vote in Oakland County did, and I think, I mean, the strong support for transit in Macomb County, uh, you need a plan uh, that, uh, that people see where they fit into all of it. We've got multiple transit agencies outside SMART um, in, in, Oakland, in Oakland County. Everyone came together to work on this, and I think those are the, the stepping stones to progress. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Dave Woodward, always great to have you here. Congrats again on the big transit win in Oakland County. Thank you very much. 
Okay, that's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we are going to talk with Dr. Abdul El-Sayed, former Detroit Health Commissioner, former candidate for governor. He will now be the Wayne County Health Department Director starting in March. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.